anytime I think about cults, I always immediately think about Waco, Texas and David Koresh or Charles Manson or Jim Jones and drinking the Kool-Aid. Those were very extreme and really tragic stories that were big in the news, but cults are not really that rare. According to some experts, at least, there are more than 10,000 cults active in the United States right now. I did some digging around on the internet, and there are some telltale signs of cult-like cultures. Cults are pressure-filled. They're closed off from the outside world. They often have leaders, of course, who claim to have special powers or divine authority. They exploit their members. They are deceptive in their recruitment methods, and they very often threaten their members with all the bad things, all the horrible things that would happen if they left. Cults are controlling and manipulative. And yeah, there is a fine line between a loving, healthy faith community and a cult. That line is hard to see, especially when you're really close to it. It's hard to know that you're inside it if you believe and have been taught to promote all the trappings that keep you inside of it. I think you all will really enjoy today's episode. Let's get to it. Hi there, everyone. I am so glad you all are joining us for this episode of the Between Podcast. Let me introduce our guest today. Christy Lynn Wood is a writer, a podcast host, and a speaker who spent 10 years of her youth in a Christian cult. If you've seen the documentary Shiny Happy People about Bill Gothard's Institute in Basic Life Principles, which... Honestly, uh, I, I just saw recently, and uh, it, there was a lot of new information in there for me. Uh, or uh, maybe you remember the show from the early 2000s called 19 and Counting that featured the Duggar family. If, if you have seen either of those things, you've got some idea of Christie's background. She was part of that IBLP movement for a decade of her life, and she's spent 20 years since trying to disentangle her true faith from the legalism and manipulation of that cult-like experience. I absolutely adored Christie's book titled Religious Rebels. Uh, and I, I really loved it. I, I love how Christie, despite all the reasons she probably has had to leave her spiritual life behind, she's been able to hold on tightly to her beautiful and loving understanding of Jesus and a healthier version of Christian faith for her. I want to start this conversation with Christy telling more of her story, but let me say up front that I, I just think everyone who listens to the Between podcast, all you betweeners out there, I think you would absolutely love Christy's book and all the online content and podcast content, everything that she creates. Christy, welcome to the show. Would you would you tell us more about your religious background? And I think for those listeners who are unfamiliar, could you explain more about how, how IBLB is uh, was a cult and and tell us. This is a long question that I'm asking you right now. I'm sorry. This is what I do. I ramble. But man, tell us about your, your faith background. Tell us how you've emerged into the person you are today, Christy. Hello, and thanks for having me. It's been, I'm really just excited to be on this show today and talk to you. Uh, IBLP. So yeah, I really am happy that the documentary came out because it kind of explains things for people. And I can just say it like that. <laughs> and then they can watch it and find out. But the Institute in Basic Life Principles was an organization, I guess you could call it, that was started actually in the 70s um, and then rebranded in the 80s to 90s. And it was just a very conservative, very legalistic, very twisted 
Um, it came across as evangelical Christian, but if you looked into it, really, I don't, I don't think it really was evangelical Christian. Um, but yeah, they had seminars and you kind of was almost a whirlpool. Like you could get caught up in the edge, the outside, which is like the basic seminar. And lots of people went to it. It's actually shocking how many Christians have been involved in Bill Gothard's basic seminar over the years. They say millions have, have seen it. Mm -hmm. And then as you get into the inner, inner of the whirlpool, that's like where the homeschooling program was. And so, yeah, I spent... 10 years of my life, very caught up in Bill Gothard's homeschooling program and, you know, brainwashing and all kinds of crazy things that we believed, lots of fear-based stuff, lots of religious formulas, lots of, if you do this, you'll get God's blessing and success. And it was very isolated and it was very, um, you were just really encouraged to only hang out with people who also followed his teachings. And I went to a church that was very, very connected to him for a while that we were considered Bill Gothard's model church, mm. which is slightly frightening. <laughs> and it was there for a good, probably six to eight years. And yeah, so that was just a lot of rules, a lot of standards, a lot of follow these things, do these things. God will bless you. And that's where it all started. I would call it a cult just because it was so controlling. If you look at the the definition of a cult from different people and you got like the emotional control and the physical control and the mental control it was all there it was all there and it was very isolating and very controlling so yeah that's a that's a good start there for that long question i think uh uh i was i learned that when you said you're in a christian cult then i watched i read your book then i watched shiny happy people and i was like oh uh, IBLP is not a like a denomination of conservative Christianity. It was like a almost like a a company or an organization that served <laughs> like that delivered services or products to yeah. churches or that used churches as a sales technique to basically yes. get people to come to the basic seminar, then sell this homeschooling program and get people into the system. And the system yes. seemed to also include not only curriculum or sort of direct seminars and conferences, but then it also grew to include these conference centers or these retreat centers uh, positioned all over the country that people would go to and and just sort of go deeper and deeper and deeper into Bill Gothard's way and the IBLP way of seeing the world, which yes, to me- Yes, they, they were actually worldwide. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> yeah. We had centers in like New Zealand, Romania, Russia. Yeah, they were worldwide. Did you go to those? I think you did. Did you ever go to any of those retreat centers or any of those any of those things? The only thing I ever did was his young ladies counseling seminar, which was like mm -hmm. the very introductory thing. I did that twice. Yeah. But if you if you know on my book and my um, podcasts and stuff, like my dad was a public school teacher the whole time I was doing this, mm -hmm. so it's a little bit weird and paradoxical there because he had one foot in the real world and people considered him to be working for the enemy. And then we also had, you know, one foot in crazy land with all of Bill Gothard stuff. And so he was very hesitant about a lot of the Gothard things. And so I never was, he never was like, he's like, I don't really want you to go there. I don't really think that's a good idea. And so he was super hesitant. And so I never got super, super deep into all of the training centers and stuff like that. Thanks mm -hmm. to my father and his hesitancy. <laughs> Yeah. Will you, will you talk a little bit more about, I think, uh, I think a lot of listeners are probably like me when I, when I hear the word cult, uh, I'm immediately, um, fascinated like you are when you drive past a, a car wreck on the side of the road, right? It's not, I'm not 
proud of that. I'm not, I'm not sure that's the right response to have, but I'm also like, well, tell me more. Like, what is, what is, what did it look like? What did it, yeah. how did it impact you? What did, uh, what did you have to do or how did you have to be inside of that culture? Yeah. Well, they had very specific rules for men and women and very specific rules for what a role looked like as a woman who you had to be as a woman. So I think that was one of the biggest things that I took away because my parents didn't even believe like the strictness of what my church and the cult believed as far as like what women should be and shouldn't be. But like I wore dresses all the time and I had super long hair and I wasn't going to go to college and I was just going to get married and have lots of babies. And I had to be quiet and I had to be submissive and I had to be sweet and rock music was bad and blue jeans were bad and earrings were bad unless you only had one as a girl and each, you know, one, one little earring in each side of your ear and just lots and lots of the standards and the rules. And we were told that if we looked different from the world, it was a good thing that we looked different, that that would make them want to be like us, that we would somehow convince them that we were like Jesus, like God, and they would want to be like us. And that would save them somehow by our strangeness. So lots of isolation and lots of rules. So I want to I want to dive into later, not right away. I want to dive into, uh, uh, you know, where the line is between what is, what is sort of a healthy community that has just strong values and and clear, you know, they've got some expectations for behavior or dress, right? Like there's, there's gotta be a healthy side of that line. And then there is an unhealthy side of that line. And I think that's, that's something that I've just admired about your writing and all the stuff you put online is that you, you seem to uh, be aware of that line and, and not leave everything that uh, not leave everything that was on the other side of the line, on the other side, on the unhealthy side of the line, you don't leave it all there. You, you chose to bring, bring the parts that you loved with you. And yeah, uh, well, let's dive into that here in a little bit, but before we sure. do, I want, I want to know about your life. I, I, I actually, we don't know much about each other. We just interact online a whole bunch. Uh, I've, I've read your book, but, but it, what your book doesn't do is tell us what your day to day life is today. Uh, what yeah. is your, I know, here's what I know about you. I know you live in Michigan. I'm from Michigan originally. So that makes me excited about you. I know you teach fifth graders, or at least I think that. And I do. Yes. In your book, you describe your husband as completely opposite from you. And and that's uh, uh, hilarious to me. Uh, and I, I just want to know more. What's tell me about your life. What brings you joy? What fills your days? Oh, I love it. Um, yeah. I'm back in the classroom after like an 11 year break. So that's been kind of weird. This is my third year back in the classroom. I teach fifth grade math. And it's fun. I kind of like it. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be there forever, but like it's it's a good spot right now to be. I teach at the same school my kids go to. I have two children. They are in sixth and seventh grade right now. And so that's kind of fun to just all be together. And once they leave that charter school, I may also join them. I don't know if I'll <laughs> stick it out, but for now it's great. It's great. I'm married to my wonderfully opposite husband. Yes, he could not be more opposite. I mean, he became a Christian as a teenager, um, was not raised in a super Christian family, got into all kinds of trouble in high school. I mean, like I was sheltered and he was out there doing all the things and, um, just has no reference for things that I grew up with. Didn't even know that I had been through the stuff that I'd been through. Cause I wasn't really talking about it until our, our son was a baby. And suddenly I was like, Oh, by the way, I should probably unpack all of this for you. But He's just, he's a very patient person who has um, just pushed me to be 
I would say my true self. Um, he's not a kind of guy who's intimidated by my strength at all. And I spent so many years of my life, like trying to hide the fact that I have a strong personality, trying to hide the fact that I'm a strong woman. And that was just not a good thing in the cult. And so he's always been like, why can't you be strong? Why can't you be who you are? Why can't you have opinions? Why can't you just tell me what you want? And so like, it's been great. It's been great. Like I would say he's probably one of the people that's made me who I really am today. What a wonderful thing to say about a partner. And I, I was struck in the documentary about how sort of uh, quiet, reserved, very, very polite, very soft-spoken women uh, is the expectation, at least the, the way yes. it was portrayed in, in that documentary. Um, and to have somebody, somebody as a partner in life say, I want to hear your whole voice. I want to, yeah. I want, I want to know every, every part uh, of what's in your brain. Uh, what a, what a wonderful gift. Yeah. It's been an absolute gift. When we talk about this podcast, we often describe it as um, we're trying to have sacred conversations about sacred conversations. And mm -hmm. so I'd love to hear stories from your life when you feel like you've had a moment of human connection with someone uh, and it, and maybe it, it really did feel sacred, uh, a moment when maybe you could sense, sense something holy there in the midst of that interaction. Do you have any of those stories you could share? Yeah, I was thinking about that. And I was just thinking about what is it that makes me feel um, that way and that sacred connection. And I would say that for me, especially as somebody who grew up in a way that felt like you had to be a certain person to get God's approval. And as I've no longer believed that, as I believe in God's unconditional love for us and his just obsession with us, even as we're broken, like in the midst of that, just loving us. I would say that the most sacred connections that I've been able to have with people are going to be people who don't expect to be accepted. People don't expect, who don't expect to be loved unconditionally because maybe they are the outcasts and maybe they are the, the quote unquote bad kid. Like a lot of times it's been those teenagers or young adults or kids that are just used to being rejected. And when I can just come and love them in like just the way that I believe Jesus loves us, like that is a sacred moment. And just knowing that they can say, hey, this is how God loves you. This is how you are loved and valued. And that's the kind of people that I love to love. <laughs> and I think part of that is because of that love that I felt from God when I recognized the real God was not somebody condemning me and judging me. He was somebody who was like, no, I love you right there in the middle of your mess. Like that's where I love you. And so I love, I love giving that to others. Like that's, that's sacred to me. I can imagine that you have that experience as a, a fifth grade teacher, as a, a teacher of, of yeah. kids in this really weird, awkward transition time of their own life. Uh, are there, is, is that part of what drew you to teaching? Is that part of what you yeah. get out of it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I would say my, my own children know that mom has a type of kid that she loves. Mm. Like they know, like she loves the broken ones. She loves mm. the ones that are super messy. And yeah, I would say every year there's usually at least one, if not more of those messy, broken kids that I just come alongside and, and love and believe in and watch them grow. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. The, uh, there's a little vignette in your book where you tell a story like that. You tell a story. Yeah. I'm not remembering the details exactly. I don't have the page open right now, but there's a, there's a story where you, I, I think, I think it was particularly striking given the context of the story, because there's so much of that story where you are maybe uh, wrestling with how, 
how important it is to look and to act a certain way for yourself, to uh, always wear a long denim skirt and to always have your hair long, to, to always act yeah. in a certain way, the way that you'd been taught. And then you see somebody uh, who looks very different and you just feel immense love. I, I hope I'm not screwing up. No, you're story absolutely up. Would right. You, would you, yep. Is, is, yeah, could you I, think share I, more I think I, I think I call him Freddie in the book or something like that. Um, his real name will keep him anonymous, but yeah, yeah, it was, that would be my first, I would think that's my first experience ever loving somebody broken like that. Hmm. And it was, I was working at the middle school in town. I was still wearing my long dresses and my long hair, but I was going to college. So it was like the first step out <laughs> into the real world. I started going to college and I was just volunteering at our middle school. This is when I started even thinking about becoming a teacher was just being there with the kids. And there was um, an eighth grader who had a reputation and um, Freddie, we'll call him Freddie. I think that's what I called him in the book. Um, he like had a reputation from a family. Like everyone knew this family. It was a small town in the thumb mm -hmm. of Michigan. Everyone knew the family. They were in and out of jail. They were, you know, always in trouble with the law. And he was like the youngest and everybody hated him. Like nobody, nobody cared about him. And I remember getting, watching him getting drugged to the principal's office one day as I was shelving books in the library and my long skirts and my long hair. And just, just like I said, let's be overwhelmed by God's love for him. And it was like, I just could feel the Holy spirit telling me like, that's how I love you. Like, I love you right there in the middle of that brokenness. You don't have to pretend you don't have to get it all fixed up. Like I see you and I I'm obsessed with you. I love you. So yeah, I did. I, uh, I went to the teachers and I said, Hey, can Freddie and I work together? Can I help him on his schoolwork? And they were like, uh, what <laughs> you're crazy. And I was like, no, I want to please. Can I? And they were like, sure. And, uh, so yeah, we started working together like once a week, just getting him caught up on whatever he hadn't gotten done. And he thought I was crazy and the teachers thought I was crazy. And I mean, I just liked being crazy. I, I liked loving Freddie and it was special. It was good. Actually, I, I love that story. I love that you, you're a kid that like, this isn't kid. Like, yeah, I was like 21, maybe. Yeah. And, and I just want to, I just want to love on this kid. I just want to work with this kid. I just want to be next to him. I want to be with him. I, I just, there is a, that takes me back to gosh, like, elementary school, thinking about kids in, you know, fourth or fifth grade that, um, I didn't choose to love. I didn't choose to interact with and who I absolutely knew, you know, uh, grew up in a small town. These kids have a reputation yeah. and their families have a reputation and they're, you know, I think of this one family, their dad was always you know, drunk and disorderly at every little league game and, and every, you know, and so many parents and so many kids just rolled their eyes and said, well, just avoid, avoid this person, just stay away from them. And in school, man, I remember, did, did you grow up this way? That we had a, we had like a, there it wasn't a punishment so much, but if you got in trouble enough in the classroom, they would literally like put these, like a wall around your desk. It was like a, oh a it was like, I, I don't know how to, it was like a big fold out thing like a three-sided wall that went up you know probably eight feet high and they would just isolate the kid so wow. that he wouldn't bother other kids like what a and i'm sure that was really good classroom management policy back then and i get it and uh, how painful for that how how embarrassing and humiliating for that kid who was broken i think is is yeah. your point this this kid's just hurting and yeah. just desperate for connection desperate for people to show up in their life and probably don't know how to respond when people do show up. But anyway, sorry, that was a, uh, that was a, a real memory that came back up for me, but thanks. Thanks for sharing that story. I think, I think seeing people being able to see 
the beauty in people who look ugly on the outside, whatever that mm -hmm. word might mean to you, is a that is a spiritual gift. I really do believe that's a spiritual gift. That is one of the ways that I think, you know, for me, God sees through me, uh, or I, I get tuned into the right frequency that I can see the beauty there. Hmm. I love it. Uh, one of my favorite things you talk about in your book, and uh, you often post about this on social media, is how you see yourself, and I'm going to use your words here, walking the awkward middle way of faith. Walking the awkward middle way of faith. What do you mean by that? Ooh, I would say that I'm looking for balance. Um, there's a lot of people who grew up like I did with Christianity that was religious Christianity that was just so full of the rules and stuff. And they, they're just done. They just, they just throw it all out. And I get it. Like I, I get it. Why you would just be done with that. And so I guess my middle way is like, I'm willing to question a lot of that religious junk, but I'm also holding on to these core beliefs in Christianity that have been held for thousands of years across denominational lines, across the world, across the culture. And so like, I hold those core truths pretty tightly. <laughs> and at the same time, I'm willing to just be like, yeah, nope, don't think so. Nope. And willing to question it, willing to engage with questions and not, it's not black and white to me. It's like, there's this, this like fuzzy little gray area that we're just trying to walk this narrow way with Jesus. And you know, balancing that truth and that grace. So yeah, it feels awkward because I don't necessarily feel like I fit in a side. Mm. You know, people are like, oh, are you like me like this? I'm like, yeah, kind of, but kind of not, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and kind of not over here either. It's just this, yeah, this awkward middle place of just seeking balance and grace and truth and who the real Jesus is. And yeah. When I first uh, invited you to join me on the podcast, uh, you were really gracious and kind. And and you also said, buried in an email exchange, you said, I, I might be a little more conservative than your average listener. And actually, I loved that comment because you it clearly meant you took some time to consider and look at what Between is all about. And actually, what I think you'll find, it, what I wish more people knew, but only me and a handful of other people can really see, is the way people who are a part of our Between community actually describe themselves. This is the widest ranging faith group I've ever even come close to encountering. We've got people who are really, really conservative, uh, both on the Protestant uh, Christian spectrum, as well as a, a whole lot of really conservative Catholic folks all over the world. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and we've got folks who are witches and pagans and Wiccans and, and folks uh, who are atheists. We've got folks... And a whole lot of people who were probably walking an awkward middle way. And so I actually love that you said that. I love that you said, well, yeah. I I do believe it's yeah. okay to claim these things that are old and traditional and make sense to you and help you make sense of the big questions of life. I think that's a beautiful thing. And you and I are probably uh, not real, uh, not right next to each other on a faith spectrum, but that yeah. doesn't mean we, you know, shouldn't talk to each other or shouldn't absolutely. engage with one another, yeah. right? Like, absolutely. I, I absolutely. think that's a beautiful thing about what you're doing. Yeah. You're, I think you're inviting people in from a perspective that is not just fully progressive, fully deconstructed and not reconstructed. You're just, you're, yeah. you're saying, no, I'm, I brought some of this with me and this matters to me. It's okay if it doesn't yeah. to you, but it matters to me. Yeah. Can you talk more about, I'm, I'm rambling here, but I just love that about that awkward middle way that you find yourself in. 
Yeah, I think um, I was on another podcast earlier this year and she was talking about how she loves how I'm so okay with questions. Mm. Like you're, you're so okay with uncertainty. And so, you know, you're not intimidated people by people with questions and their doubts. And I was like, no, I'm really not. And I think it does come down to what you just said about the faith that I have now is that I've gone through so much stuff, you know, both in the cult, there was spiritual abuse that happened just like seven years ago in a church that where my husband was youth pastoring. There was just a lot of stuff I've been through and the stuff that I hold on to now, like it's solid with me. And I don't, I won't, I'm not offended or intimidated if you don't believe it. Like your, your lack of faith or, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter to me. Like, I'm like, I respect your opinions and I respect other people's opinions and I'm not afraid of questions and I'm not afraid of doubt. And I think part of that comes down to, I just really believe in a really big God Mm. who is big enough to figure it out. He's big enough to figure us out. He's big enough to, you know, draw us to the place that is really truth. And as we're seeking and we're looking, like, I think he 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 can get us there. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just, I'm just not, I think my faith is just solid. Like it's just, it's just solid. And uh, that doesn't mean I can't love you or, you know, interact with different people and different beliefs. Like, great. Let's bring it. Let's talk. Yeah. Let's, you know, let's love each other. And yeah. So. I want to, I want to stay in this general ballpark here for a minute. There's a a couple spots in your book where you sort of hold the tension and live in the gray. Uh, you believe people are magnificent and you can sense uh, that there is brokenness in people. You, you see uh, both of these truths. Uh, can, I, can I read a couple sections of your sure. book that I thought highlighted that? Sure. So somewhere in the middle of your book, you wrote, uh, I'll start it. We were made to be magnificent. Human beings were the culmination of God's creation. He lovingly, personally fashioned us from dust, intentionally sculpted and gave us life. Beautiful, powerful, creative, intelligent, and capable, we were built in the very image of God. We were especially designed for relationships, able to intimately know others, and able to walk with God himself. Uh, I love that section uh, sort of just this inherent beauty in us. And then later, uh, later in the book, a whole separate section, you wrote this. And I think, by the way, you were, you had just finished telling uh, or uh, recounting the story of Zacchaeus, the, uh, yeah. is this the short guy who climbed the tree? Am I yeah, getting a Bible yep, story, right? Yep. A short guy who climbed the tree, uh, the tax collector and Jesus, Jesus says, I'm going to go hang out at your house tonight. Is that, That's that story, yeah, right? This, I yeah. Think so, yep. Yeah. Um, at the end of that, uh, you, you wrote this, the son of man came to seek and save the lost. That is amazing news. We are desperately lost, desperately broken, but it is okay because we're also desperately loved. We are insanely and scandalously adored. Jesus came specifically to seek and save us. He wants all of us, every bit of our broken pieces. He wants to forgive our sin and gently put us back together. Will you talk about those two ideas a little, how we are magnificent creations of God, but we're also lost and broken, and maybe even talk how talk about how uh, that impacts the way you interact with people in your life? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, there's Christians out there that just want to talk about what worms we are and how we're just these, like, you know, desperately evil, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but can't, <laughs> you're missing it. Like, once again, that's once 
awkward middle way. You know, I'm not going to just jump on this side or that side because I think it's both. It's paradox, it's tension. And I do think we are made to be beautiful and magnificent creatures. I mean, look at us, like, look at the things that we're capable of. You look at some people, you know, who don't share our same faith, like just the beauty of, of people and the things that they're um, capable of. And just, yeah. And so I, I mean, I do very much hold that, that we are amazing creatures that were made in the image of God and are just, that's what makes us so precious. Like being made in the image of God to me is like, that's why humanity is so precious. And yet at the same time, I think we'd be silly to not acknowledge that it's broken. And I think we can all feel that brokenness in ourselves. You know, we, we sense that something isn't right. That like, you know, I can't, I can't get this together. Mm -hmm. And I have these desires and these needs that I can't meet and I can't make people meet. And, you know, we sense that, that something is not right, that we're not who we are supposed to be. And for me and my faith, I believe that comes back to the fall and that we are just, we've, we've been mangled, been corrupted. Like we're not who we were made to be anymore because of the way the sin and, um, I don't, I don't love the word sin. It's just been really, you know, messed up. I, I think of it more as just self-centeredness and just the pride and all of the things that are just snuck into us that just make us not the beautiful people that we're made to be. And, you know, we're, we're capable of horrific evil as well. And we see that within humanity, just the, you know, the horrific evil that we're capable of. And, yeah, I do hold that intention. I hold, I hold that intention. I, I truly believe that Jesus came to put us back together, to restore us, to make us into the people that he intended us to be. And so I do think that that's how I interact with people. I think I can see the beauty in them. And I think that, um, I think it's important to let them know that they're made to connect and made to um, be loved. So yeah, for sure. I'm desperately seeking a quote from your book right now, and I am uh, ill-prepared to find it, and that's embarrassing, but I loved a way you actually described sin. In fact, I think I posted it on social media. I love oh, it yeah, so much. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it was. The but selfishness you... that discolors everything. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But you juxtaposed yeah. it again. You said, you know, sin isn't just about behaviors. You yeah. you would you spend a bunch of time talking about behaviors in a section of your book that you know people are so obsessed with these behaviors are yeah. sin. And you said, no, 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 it's not the behaviors. It's the self-centeredness that discolors. What'd you yeah. say? What, what was that? Selfishness. Line? I think, I think I called it selfish. Mm -hmm. It's the selfishness that discolors everything. It might be self-centeredness. It's something to that same effect. Well, I love it. Because I think it's, well, it's so easy for us to be like, well, that's sin and that's sin and you're bad and you're bad. And then, you know, you don't acknowledge your own brokenness, but it's that, it's that selfishness. I mean, you can be doing, I tell, I talk about this a lot. Like you could be doing really great things that look good on the outside and it, it's still wrong because it's not really, yeah. you know, it's, it's selfish. It's, you know, people who are like, I have my Bible time and I read mm. scripture and I memorize, but they're so full of pride. Like, mm. you know, that's, it's not really a good thing anymore. Yeah. That, uh, I, I have a hard time with the idea of sin and I wrestle with it in uh, a lot of different ways. I, I often don't even use that word. Uh, and when I do, I, I, I find myself, uh, this is funny. I wrote about this in a book that I'm trying to get published right now, but I'm just going to say it out loud. Uh, I, I, um, do you know, like, like in Latin based languages or like, uh, Spanish, which I speak really poorly, 
uh, you know, sin means without, like, like it's just the word yes. without. Yes. And uh, actually, I love to see the word sin. Every time I see it, I read it in Spanish. And I, I think uh, all, all we, all uh, the way I understand it, or the a way that makes it a meaningful word to me is that we are without each other or without God or without a connection to that which grounds us or that which makes us whole. Yeah. And you saying, well, you know, it's not about these little behaviors. Those are symptoms of a larger thing, which is uh, selfishness or self-centeredness. Yeah. That to me feels yeah. like the same thing. We are without... Yeah. Uh, yeah. We are without our connection to God, which would help us yeah. see people's beauty and see people's magnificence. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think there's a way, you know, I think I, I don't use sin in my theology a whole lot, uh, mostly because I think it's been corrupted by people who see it as behavioral. And I don't yeah. think yeah. that doesn't really, that doesn't seem to be what it's actually about to me and maybe to you too. No, I agree with that. I think um, along those lines, and I can't remember if this is in my book or not, if it's just something I talk about all the time, but the Bible talks about like sin um, causing death. And I think so often we just think of physical death, but the other day, I don't know, a couple months ago, a year ago, something like that, times ago, I was thinking about death. What is death? I was like, death is separation. Mm -hmm. Like death is separation. And if you think about like that sin, that, that selfishness and that corruption side of us brings separation. Like, it's so true. It separates us from people. Mm -hmm. It separates us from God. Cause we're like, oh, well, God doesn't like me. I'm, you know, whatever. And you're just separated from God. You're separated from yourself. Mm -hmm. Like we can't even really understand ourselves when we're so caught up in this just brokenness and corruption. And I was like, you know, if death is separation, you know, what is life? And I think life really is about connection. Mm -hmm. It's about that connection with God and connection with others and connection with ourselves in a whole and healing way. And yeah, I just that's one of those things that I think that we can't do by ourselves. We need Jesus. We need that restoration that God wants to give us through himself because he loves us. I love that sentiment. And uh, I could nerd out in this particular area for a long time. But the the idea that the idea that uh, maybe okay, let's use sin is selfishness. Uh, that's an yeah. easy thing. So sin is self-centeredness, sin is selfishness. If that's true, then to quote unquote, get out of sin, I have to do one thing, focus my love and attention and energy elsewhere, right? Like I, if, if, if I've got a hundred percent of attention to give and even any of it's on me, if I give a hundred percent of it away, if I, if I focus all that love and attention elsewhere on other people, on the, the people I connect with, on the people I encounter, on the the brokenness I see and I choose to love around me, mm -hmm. uh, is that the way out? Well, I don't know. I don't know if it gets me into heaven. I don't know what it does, but I do know that it probably helps me be a better human being. I do know that it probably helps me be a better dad to my daughters. It probably helps me be a better neighbor, a better coach to the kids that I coach in youth sports, a better teacher in a, at the fifth grade yeah. level, right? Like I, I'm pretty sure if I focus my love and attention as much of it as I can elsewhere, that's probably living pretty close to a Jesus centered life. At least that's a, a that's easy math for me to do anyway. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious. I mean, you've shared a powerful story. Your, your book is beautiful. You got a podcast. Uh, you've had a podcast and I think you're sort of relaunching a podcast if I'm getting, yeah, right. I'm but, starting a new one up. Yes. <laughs> um, 
I, I love all the stuff you post on social media. Why, why are you doing this? Why, what's, what's your point? What do you, what compels you to do all this? What do you want other people to take away from the work you're doing? I want them to meet Jesus. Mm, okay. I feel like that. <laughs> and it's, it's not something that I can like explain, you know, particularly, I can't give you the steps to make it happen. I can't, um, you know, walk you through, if you do this, that, and this, it'll happen. But like, that was what changed my life. And I think that experiencing a very real God that I can't explain, um, a real presence that is real, <laughs> not, it's not a good enough answer for some people, but I mean, I don't know. I don't know how to tell you about it. Um, but that's why I'm still, why I still hold my faith. Like, that's why I still believe what I believe. And I just don't want people to be caught up in the Christian religion. I don't want them to be caught up in the behaviors and the uh, trying to appease God. Like I, I want them to have the opportunity to meet Jesus for themselves. And so that's kind of what I do. What I do. I mean, like, that's my goal. And my heart is just to take the story that I've been given and to share it with others and to hopefully have them be able to have that divine connection with God as well. Hmm. You do a great job in your book of differentiating between religion uh, as you've understood it and sort of a rules-based religion and um, separating religion from Jesus, uh, a, a, your connection with Jesus, uh, your relationship. And I thought you did a, a wonderful job. <laughs> you said a couple of times just now, that's hard to explain. I can't explain it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, you can. You did. And you did a great job of it. And I'm, I'm sure it feels... Uh, like a big, uh, you know, sort of fluffy bubble up in the sky that you can't quite get your hands on uh, to yeah. bring and give to other people. But I, I think the way that you live and the way that you communicate and all the things that you've written, I think you do a wonderful job of of sharing that message with people. Thank you. I appreciate so that. I want to return to a topic that we were kind of touching on at the beginning. Yeah. Um, And this to me feels like the meat of uh, the conversation that, that you're having in your book and that I, I hope that we're conveying to listeners right now, but there's a fine line between a loving faith community and one that is controlling and manipulative uh, yep. and potentially abusive. Uh, you have a really powerful section in your book where you're talking about rediscovering what you understand as the Holy spirit for yourself. And this is one of the places where you do a good job of describing uh, your connection with Jesus. Yeah. Uh, you talk about how in a lot of controlling Christian envi Christian environments, the Holy Spirit, the idea of the Holy Spirit is often pushed to the side. Um, yes. I'm going to read another short section of what you wrote in Religious Rebels. Okay. You wrote, maybe the Holy Spirit is uncomfortable to more conservative and fundamental churches because the Spirit isn't easily understandable or controllable. We can put God in a box. Jesus sort of goes in a box, but... How in the world do you box the spirit? He is, un, he is untamed, wild, and free. And I suppose if you are trying to control your members through fear, either in a church or a Christian cult, then making them aware of the very spirit of God living inside of them and giving them power, wisdom, and knowledge might be a bad thing. It's very likely that you would lose your followers because they would begin to see through the lies, excuse me, see through you and your lies. And if people recognize that they have a supernatural power living within them, working to restore their very hearts, well, rules and standards are no longer as important. Human leaders begin to lose power when the Holy Spirit gets control. 
Woo, Christy, that was uh, that section. I I loved that little paragraph. I highlighted it four times. I was like, we got to talk about this. <laughs> so this is a tough question. Uh, yeah. But do you have a sense of what that fine line between a controlling faith community and a loving faith community really looks like? I think that there are red flags in a lot of normal churches for me these days. Mm. Like people, people wouldn't necessarily go in and be like, oh, this is a great church. And I go in, and I'm like, mm. <laughs> I'm feeling something here. And I think a lot of it comes down to that black and white thinking, the us versus them. Like we have it right. Everyone else has it wrong. Mm. And I mean, I feel that even just in some like just typical churches where they're like, we're doing it right. Like we're the ones who have it right. And I'm like, yeah, yeah pro probably not. <laughs> so I think, I think when they're starting to say like, you can't, <clears throat> you can't be yourself and you can't seek God for yourself and you can't have your own like convictions about things like that's, it starts to get real dangerous right there. So I, I mean, a lot of that controlling abusive stuff comes through like, like, we're, we're amazing. Look at us. It's narcissism. It's systemic narcissism of the community as a whole. It could be a narcissistic leader that's like running the show, but it, it's that, it's that power and control. And so whenever I see any kind of a situation where there's that power and control over people, that makes me start to get real hesitant. So I think you can be a super healthy faith community where you're just loving each other and you know, seeking to find the truth together. And you could have, like you said, things where you're like, this is what we believe. This mm -hmm. is our doctrinal statement. And I think that's fine. It's fine to tell people what you believe. But when it becomes that place where you're being controlled, that makes me nervous. Yeah. And I think that I <laughs> just, this is thinking more of like recently experiences, yeah. but there's a very big difference between secrecy and privacy. Hmm. And some of these unhealthy situations, they're going to call it privacy and it's not, it's secrecy. They're trying to keep things secret to protect themselves. Privacy says, I don't want to tell your whole story. That's your story. I'll let you go ahead and share it if you want to. It's it's deference to others. Mm -hmm. Secrecy says, no one needs to find out what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. This is my stuff. We're going to keep this hidden. We're not going to tell the truth about this because what I want to, and it's about control again. It's about power. If I keep this quiet, if I keep this hidden, then um, I can control you. And, you know, there's been a lot of, there's been a lot of, pastors and leaders within the Christian community that have been exposed for this kind of abusive power. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I, I think there are two conversations you could have at the exact same time here. One conversation is about unhealthy faith communities or just unhealthy groups, right. That mm -hmm. are, uh, have a narcissistic leader, have control and secrecy, uh, and we are doing it. We know the right way that you mm -hmm. should be doing things, that you should be living your life. Anything that is like that is probably, um, a, has some red flags on it, I think is the right way to put it. Yeah. But, but the other conversation I think you could have at the exact same time is the way that we interact with other people in our daily life, just as individuals in the same way and how yeah. that learning to do that. Learning an, or, an organization that operates that way teaches its people that it's okay to operate that way in oh, their absolutely. families, in their workplace conversations, yeah. in the way that yeah. they talk to their barista at the coffee shop, right? Like the that stuff bleeds down into the way yeah. that we interact with people. Yeah, hmm. absolutely. 
Well, uh, where can people find you online? And uh, uh, is the, where can people listen to the podcast? Yeah. Where can people if, buy the I mean, book? If you, if you search up Christy Lynn Wood, you're going to find like all my stuff because I always just use that as my handle. So I'm on threads. I'm on Instagram. Um, I'm on Facebook sometimes. Um, Substack. I have a Substack that I send out like twice a month. So that same thing, Christy Lynn Wood at Substack.com. And then my book is on Amazon. Um, you can get it on Amazon. It's also on walmart.com and barnesandnobles.com. And then if you want an autographed copy, you can order it from my website. So yeah, that's I, also I missed that. I option. ordered it. I ordered it on Kindle. I, I ended up reading it on Kindle, but now I'm going to have to go back to that. I saw that yesterday on your website. I was like, oh, I could have gotten an autographed copy. I didn't know that. Yeah. That's great. Well, I love it, Christy. Thank you so much for being a guest. And, and yeah, you're welcome. Genuinely, uh, thanks for putting this stuff out into the world. I think uh, I just... As I've dove into this work with Between over the last yeah. few years now, the amount of people who are hurting from yeah. controlling religious backgrounds and childhoods and who are who are hurting, who are uh, just feeling immediate and lasting trauma and pain yeah. from the way that their religion treated them uh, when they were kids, I think, and for that matter now, uh, they're... We need as many voices in the world as possible, and especially wonderful, powerful voices like yours who can show folks a awkward middle way, a healthy middle way, uh, who can show people hope about the way they can continue to let faith be an important part of their life, um, but maybe get rid of some of the parts that were painful in the past. And I just yeah. wanted to say thank you, Christy. Yeah. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. I appreciate this conversation. Hey, thanks to all you betweeners out there for listening to this episode of the Between Podcast. Make sure you visit between.church on the internet to sign up for our mailing list. That's probably the most important thing, our email list. Make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube. You can check out our five-minute sermons, five-ish minute sermons that we post every week. Follow us on social media. We got daily prayers. We got all sorts of other content and join our community fully. We invite everyone. You are welcome here. No matter who you are or where you're from, no matter what you believe, or even if you believe, no matter who you love or how you love, no matter what anybody else has ever told you about you, you are welcome and loved and celebrated here at Between you know, my favorite church is the space between people. Now go with God's love and create the church between.